Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we're going to be looking at Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. And it's the last snapshot before Jesus arrives at Jerusalem. This long travel narrative through the middle section of the Gospel of Luke that has been aimed at this moment, his arrival at Jerusalem. Um, And so we finally have arrived. We're at the final movement there. And so Jesus is now going to leave Jericho. That's where he's at, if you recall the previous episode. So he's in Jericho, and he's going to leave Jericho, and he's going to climb the long hill out of Jericho and up to the city of Jerusalem. And it's Passover season, and so there's a group of pilgrims heading to Jerusalem. Jesus has healed a blind man there in Jericho. He's welcomed Zacchaeus, which created a bunch of controversy and confusion. And as we move into Passover season, uh, which is a you know really a celebration of national independence and liberation, there's a sense of anticipation in the air. There's a, a buzz, right? Like, Could this be the moment? Jesus seems like the guy. He does weird things like welcome Zacchaeus, but he heals Bartimaeus. And right, there's this buzz in the air, this sense of anticipation as Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. He's only a day's hike away. Um, and and people are wondering, this maybe this is it. Maybe this is the moment when our Passover hopes and dreams are realized. And into that situation, there on the edge of Jericho, Jesus speaks a parable to all the people gathered around him, to the citizens of uh, Jericho, right? He speaks a parable, and a difficult parable it is. It's not difficult to understand what happens in the parable. That's pretty straightforward. Here's what happens. A nobleman inherits a kingdom. He heads off to the capital to have his kingship confirmed. And that happens to the dismay of his newfound subjects. They actually send a delegation after him, appealing to the the, the folks at the capital not to have him confirmed as king because he's such a tyrant and so awful. Before he leaves to have his kingdom confirmed, this nobleman actually entrusts some money to some of his servants. Upon his return from the capital whereupon he was given the kingdom, even though there was protest against it. Upon his return, he assesses if those that he entrusted the money to made him any profit while he was away. He rewards those who do make profit, and he, uh, all those who didn't want him to be king, well, those he executes. He slaughters and he kills. That's what happens in the parable, right? So, it's like, okay, well, there's the story. It's a weird story, and it's, yeah, right? The difficulty doesn't lie in, you know, understanding the story. The difficult li- difficulty lies in understanding what does the parable mean? Like, what does it refer to, and what's its message? Some take it to refer to the time between the first and second comings of Jesus and as a reference then to Jesus coming in judgment. So Jesus is the nobleman who inherits a kingdom. He goes away to heaven to confirm his kingship, and then he returns in judgment um, and gets rid of all those who didn't want him to be king. So some take it that way. Some take it to be about Jesus' kingship, 
and the Jewish rejection of that kingship and the judgment that will come in AD 70 as a result. So Jesus inherits the king kingdom. Um, and when Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70, that's like the noblemen coming back and killing all those who didn't want to be kings. Some take it to refer to that. Others take it as providing simply a contrast to what, what um, Jesus as the true king is actually like. He's not a cruel tyrant like this guy in the story. And so some take it simply as just painting a contrast picture to, well, you want the kingdom of God to come, but it's not going to be like what you think. So first things first, let's just acknowledge that what Jesus is saying by this parable is tricky, that Bible-loving, God-fearing Bible teachers and scholars have, have different views on what this parable is actually teaching. But the more I've studied this parable and reflected on it, the more convinced I am that this parable is a warning. It's a warning that, that challenges Jesus' original audience to think about their misunderstanding and misguided expectations for God's kingdom. I think that for a variety of reasons, but uh, we'll work through the details here and I'll flesh that out. But I think that Jesus isn't saying the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like. He never says that with regard to this parable. So I don't think he's saying this is about Jesus and his kingship because he never says, here's what you get when, you know, the kingdom of God comes. He actually seems to be saying the op opposite, right? And this becomes very clear when you actually take this parable and you set it into its original historical context. That's what I want to do in the comments below so we can understand the context of it. And I think when we understand the historical context, we'll see that now this parable isn't saying the kingdom of God is like this. It's saying this is not what the kingdom of God is like. So let's begin looking at the details of this text. And to start, just notice right up front, Luke actually gives us the frame so we can have some idea of what the parable is addressing, at least what's motivating this parable. In fact, here in Luke 19, 11 through 27, or 19, really 11 through 28, the frame is both at the beginning and at the end. And what the frame is that Luke gives us is that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and everyone expects the kingdom of God to come. All right, that's the frame. Notice how Luke sets it up in 1911. He says, now, while they were listening to these things, while they're listening to Jesus talk and teach there in Jericho, while they're listening to what some of the things he said about Zacchaeus, while they're listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So the parable is addressing their expectations of the arrival of the messianic kingdom. Jesus' ministry has attracted such a buzz and created so much uh, stir that now that he's heading to Jerusalem at the Passover season, they're thinking it's time. The kingdom of God is going to appear. And so that's what motivates what's going on here because he's right on the cusp of Jerusalem and he's heading there next. In fact, verse 28, at the end of the parable, Luke immediately says, after Jesus said these things, that is after he told the parable, he was going on up to Jerusalem. So that's the frame. Jesus is going to Jerusalem and they all expect the kingdom of God to appear. 
Now, there's some obviously some confusion about the kingdom of God when they say they expect it to appear because Jesus has already explained that the kingdom of God is in their midst. It's present in the person of Jesus. Jesus said that in Luke 17, 20, and 21. In response to a question of when is the kingdom of God going to appear, Jesus said that the kingdom of God was in their midst, Luke 17, 20 and 21. And so that's part of the very recent context to this whole situation. But they're confused about that, and they have their own expectations of the, for the kingdom of God and what they think is going to happen when it's going to appear. What are those expectations? Well, by and large, just in short, their expectations were that there would be a powerful king who would rule from Jerusalem. So in this case, they're thinking Jesus is going to be that king. He's going to be the next king like David, who's going to seize the throne, and he's going to uh, really destroy the Romans or at least expel them from the land. He's going to conquer them, destroy them, eliminate them, and Israel will be vindicated and be elevated as the great kingdom, the kingdom of all kingdoms. That's sort of their expectation. And bare minimum, it means powerful king, vanquishing the Romans, vindication of Israel. So their expectations follow along these lines for the kingdom of God. And that's really been what every claim to the throne of Israel has been since the days of the Maccabees, where that's sort of this political ruler who seizes the throne, he's going to be king, he's going to get rid of Israel's enemies and all that. Well, this parable that Jesus speaks um, intends to really clarify what it means for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and be made king. And it's not what they expect. What they expect is something other than what's really going to happen. And so Jesus tells a story, a story that immediately awakens a recent political memory of what political power is often like. It's a story that's actually intentionally echoing the last king over Israel before the Romans decided to rule Judea directly. It's a story, I think, that says, don't expect God's kingdom to be like that. So this is sort of a story that subverts their expectations of God's kingdom. I think that's how we need to read this parable. Now, before we read the parable, we need to actually get that recent political memory in our minds, since it's not there for us, but it was there for them. And so we need to have that in mind so when we hear the parable, we can hear it the way the original audience would have heard it. So here are the political events that are echoed in Jesus' parable. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, there was political instability in the land of the Jews, and Herod's sons vied for control in the face of growing unrest. One of Herod's sons was named Archelaus, and in the face of growing unrest, he killed approximately 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem during Passover. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for Passover. And just like the noblemen in the story that Jesus is going to tell that we'll read in a moment, Archelaus traveled to Rome to have his title of king confirmed. And the Jews were outraged with the prospect of him becoming their king because he was just as brutal as his father, Herod the Great. So, once again, like the story that Jesus tells, they actually sent an official delegation after him uh, of 50 leading men to Rome. And the goal was to keep him from becoming king. 
Well, Caesar actually gave Archelaus the rulership over Judea. And so when he returned back to Judea, he took brutal revenge on all those who opposed him as king. Well, over the next decade, he was such a brutal, violent ruler that the Jews finally did manage to succeed in getting him deposed. They got him deposed in the year A.D. 6. And he was the last king of the Jews at this point that we're at in Jesus' life. And from that point on, Judea was ruled uh, by Roman governors under direct Roman rule. No Jewish king, no Jewish ruler over them, at least for the time period. There'll eventually be somebody here in about a oh, I don't know, decade uh, from Jesus' time, 14, 15 years from Jesus' time. But at this point, when Jesus tells the story, Archelaus was the last king of Judea. And he was awful, and he was brutal, and he was vile, and he was hated. So when we stand in the sandals of Jesus' original audience, that political memory is all right in their mind. Not only that, on the west side of Jericho, along this very road that Jesus is going to walk on his way up to Jerusalem, there sat the palaces of Herod. And those palaces were last remodeled by who? Archelaus. And so all of this context is like right before their eyes, right in their mind, as Jesus tells this parable. And when he tells this parable, they could not help but have him in mind. Let's listen now to the parable with those political events in mind. This is what Jesus says. Luke 19, verse 12, Jesus tells a parable, and he said to them, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his own slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this money until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him and saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, just a couple technical little details. A mina, uh, he gave 10 slaves a mina. A mina is about 100 denarii. So roughly about 100 days wages. And so he gave each of these slaves, one mina, and said, do business with that money until I come back. And then his citizens hated him, sent a delegation. We don't want him to reign over us. Can you hear the obvious echo of Archelaus in this parable? The last time someone made a king, a claim to be king of the Jews, it was him. What did he do? He went to a distant country to have his kingship confirmed. What happened? They didn't want him to be king. They sent a delegation. Like, there's no way the original audience could have heard Jesus tell this story and not made a connection with Archelaus. All that hatred, all that pain from his rule would have been stirred up. The memory of 3,000 killed by him in Jerusalem at Passover stirred up. So it seems there's no way, at least to me, it seems like there's no way the nobleman in Jesus' parable can represent Jesus himself. I just don't think we could say this nobleman represents Jesus. And so like the first to second coming understanding of this parable just doesn't make sense to me anymore. That's what I used to think. But the more I've studied it, the more convinced I am that there's no way this nobleman can represent Jesus because, because of what this nobleman stood for, what this nobleman evoked for them in their historical memory. 
Now, Jesus goes on in the parable, and this is what happens. Um, the story continues with the nobleman returning after being given authority to rule. And the nobleman acts very much like Archelaus acted. Verse 15, when he, the nobleman, returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be summoned to him so that he would learn how much they had made by the business they had done. The first slave appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Since you've been faithful in the very little thing, you are going to have authority over ten cities. The second one came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five more minas. And he said to him also, Ah, you'll be over five cities. Now, in our modern capitalistic context, we tend to read this and cheer these guys on like, wow, they did great. Look at how much business they did and how much money they made. They made a profit. But in the ancient world, um, they weren't modern capitalists. They looked on such business practices as described here in the parable with deep suspicion. In fact, even Aristotle uh, called exchange for profit unnatural. That's the way they viewed the kind of business practices that are described in this parable. In their, in their context, often the outcome of such business dealings as described here was for the ordinary little guy, the loss of land. Sometimes indentured servitude resulted as a result of business practices like that. And these are the very business practices that this nobleman rewards. In fact, one scholar says this. She says, without question, the nobleman in this story would have infuriated a first century audience because of the way he got his kingdom, because of the business practices that he's honoring and how then he's taking these people and making them in charge of 10 whole cities because they made him money. That sort of business practices would have been just looked on as despicable and would have infuriated a first century audience. Again, that says to me that this nobleman cannot represent Jesus. He's a hated kind of person, a despised kind of person. These are despicable business practices to them. Not only that, Jesus mentions one other person that the nobleman loaned money to. Uh, verse 20, and then another one came saying, Master, here's your mina, which I kept tucked away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a demanding man. You take up what you did not lay down. You reap what you did not sow. And the master said to him, from your own lips, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I'm a demanding man taking up what I didn't lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Well, why didn't you put my money in the bank at least so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? So this fella does nothing. He actually hides the money. He hides it in a very insecure way. He put it in a handkerchief and kind of kept it tucked away and then just gives his mina back. And he describes the master as harsh and gaining profit where he doesn't deposit anything, right? That's what he says, that I knew you were a demanding man. You take up what you did not lay, lay down. You reap what you did not sow. You get profit where you don't deposit anything. Here's what's interesting. Josephus actually lists that very practice, taking what one did not deposit, as a crime that the Jews punished more than others. Like, so what this... What this guy is described as by this particular man is, is something that was viewed as criminal activity by the Jews. In other words, this guy is a bloodsucker. He's ruthless, 
greedy. Uh, he loans money and expects you to make him some money off of it, even if it's interest from the bank, right? Like loaning money and charging interest was forbidden by the Old Testament law, but this guy doesn't care because he just wants money. He wants power, wealth, and control. And so he's going to do whatever he can get to get that. And so he takes the one mina from the, this guy and gives it to the guy that he's already given 10 city to. This is what happens. Verse 24. Then he said to the other slaves who were present, take the mina away from him. Give it to the one who already has 10 minas. They said to him, master, he already has 10 minas. And this uh, guy says, I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given. But from the one who doesn't have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Essentially, what he says is, too bad. The rich get richer because they made me money. I'm going to give them more stuff. The rich get richer. And then the parable ends with the nobleman in this parable who's been made king doing exactly what Archelaus did when he returned. Uh, this is what happens. Verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence just like Archelaus did. And that's the end of the story. And then immediately Luke restates the setting. And Jesus, after these things, was going on ahead up to Jerusalem. And that's where the episode ends. And here's what's fascinating is that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Jesus has just been called the son of David by Bartimaeus there in Jericho. That's a royal title. So Jesus, the son of David, is heading to Jerusalem. And he knows what's going to happen when he gets there. There's not going to be any slaying of enemies when he gets there. Rather, he's going to be slain by his enemies. He knows that. He's been talking about that with his apostles along this journey to Jerusalem. And so it seems to me that this parable told by Jesus and placed here by Luke, it seems to me that this parable is saying Jesus is indeed coming to Jerusalem as king. But he's not like the kinds of kings that, that they've had. He's not like the kinds of kings they're looking for. A powerful, ruthless king who's going to abolish their enemies, who's going to slaughter those awful, terrible Romans. What this parable appears to do is present a contrast and say, look, political power, nationalistic zeal, it's often like this. It's often like Archelaus or Herod the Great or many of the awful kings we've been. If you want that kind of king, if that's what you're expecting me to be, you're not going to get that because this is what it leads to. It leads to 3,000 people being killed in Jerusalem at Passover. It leads to people who oppose that kind of king just being slaughtered in the presence of the king for his pure pleasure. It looks to uh, corrupt business practices that just take cities and give them to people who make him profit. That's the way political power often works. What one scholar says is this parable seems to draw attention to the folly of a nationalistic ideology that perpetuates violence seeking to establish the kingdom of God on the model of Rome. Jesus embodies God's kingdom, and he's on his way to Jerusalem to carry on the mission of God's kingdom. But it's not that kind of kingdom, and he's not that kind of king. That's what it seems this parable is actually about here. In fact, in the very next passage, Jesus will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. As hailed as king, on a donkey, humble and lowly, the text says, not on a war horse. He'll actually weep over the city of Jerusalem because they didn't recognize the day that their king came to them. 
He knows that violence is in their future. He actually says when he weeps over their city that there's a time coming when all this, this glory of Jerusalem is going to be torn down because you didn't recognize me as king, humble and lowly and riding on a donkey. And then in just a few short days from when he tells this parable, he's actually going to lay down his life praying for those who killed him. He's a very different kind of king than what they're looking for and what they expect. And it seems to me that this parable really just serves up a warning simply by calling to mind, remember the last time that you expected a king? The last time you had a king, what happened? That's not the kind of king you want. That's not the kind of king I'm going to be. And so I see this parable now as being a warning about nationalistic configurations of the kingdom of God. It's what happened for the Jews from the Maccabees to the Jewish revolt that led to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. They were nationalistic configurations of the kingdom of God, and it led to violence and destruction, power grabs, and all sorts of heartache. It's the same thing that actually happened with the so-called Holy Roman Empire in church history. It was a nationalistic configuration of the kingdom of God that led to all sorts of um, really political destruction over the lives of people and in cities. Uh, it, it even infected some of the papal configurations in the Middle Ages of the church, where there was power grabs, there was infighting, there was hostility and wars. Some of the state churches in our own uh, more recent history in China and in Germany, right? Like nationalistic configurations of the kingdom of God don't work very well. We see that even in the U.S. when um, God's people, the followers of the Lamb who laid down his life for us, try to identify the kingdom of God with the United States and particular configurations of the United States. It doesn't work. Nationalistic configurations of the kingdom of God are contrary to the way of the Messiah. Whenever we have nationalistic configurations of the kingdom of God, it turns sour real quick. There's greed and abuse of money and questionable business dealings. There's brutal uses of power. And Jesus... Jesus is just not that kind of king. 